Chapter 3 of Memoirs of Napoleon, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tina Nygaard. Memoirs of Napoleon, Volume 1, by Louis de Bourrienne. Chapter 3, Part 1. 1794 to 1795. Proposal to send Bonaparte to Lavendi. He has struck off the list of general officers. Salicetti, Joseph's marriage with Mademoiselle Clary. Bonaparte's wish to go to Turkey. Note explaining the plan of his proposed expedition. Madame Bourrienne's character of Bonaparte. An account of her husband's arrest. Constitution of the year three. The thirteenth Vendemar. Bonaparte appointed second in command of the Army of the Interior. Eulogium of Bonaparte by Barras and its consequences. St. Helena Manuscript. General Bonaparte returned to Paris, where I also arrived from Germany shortly after him. Our intimacy was resumed, and he gave me an account of all that had passed in the campaign of the South. He frequently alluded to the persecutions he had suffered and he delivered to me the packet of papers noticed in the last chapter, desiring me to communicate their contents to my friends. He was very anxious, he said, to do away with this supposition that he was capable of betraying his country, and, under the pretense of a mission to Genoa, becoming a spy on the interests of France. He loved to talk over his military achievements at Toulon and in Italy. He spoke of his first successes with that feeling of pleasure and gratification, which they were naturally calculated it to excite in him. The government wished to send him to Levandi with the rank of Brigadier General of Infantry. Bonaparte rejected this proposition on two grounds. He thought the scene of action unworthy of his talents, and he regarded his projected removal from the artillery to the infantry as a sort of insult. This last was his most powerful objection, and was the only one he urged officially. In consequence of his refusal to accept the appointment offered him, the Committee of Public Safety decreed that he should be struck off the list of general officers. This statement as to the proposed transfer of Bonaparte to the infantry, his disobedience to the order, and his consequent dismissal, is fiercely attacked by the error, tome one, Chapter 4. It is, however, correct in some points, but the real truths about Bonaparte's life at this time seem so little known that it may be well to explain the whole matter. On the 27th of March, 1795, Bonaparte, already removed from his employment in the South, was ordered to proceed to the Army of the West to command its artillery as Brigadier General. He went as far as Paris, and then lingered there, partly on medical certificate. While in Paris, he applied, as Bourrienne says, to go to Turkey to organize its artillery. His application, instead of being neglected, as Bourrienne says, was favorably received, two members of the Comité de Saint-Publix putting on its margin most favorable reports of him. One, Jean de Braille even saying he was too distinguished an officer to be sent to a distance at such a time. 
far from being looked on as the half-crazy fellow Bourienne considered him at the time, Bonaparte was appointed, on the 21st of August, 1795, one of four generals attached as military advisers to the Committee for the Preparation of Warlike Operations, his own department being a most important one. He himself, at the time, tells Joseph that he is attached to the topographical bureau of the Comité de Saint-Public for the direction of the armies in the place of Carnou. It is apparently this significant appointment to which Madame Junot, wrongly dating it, alludes as no great thing. Junot, Volume 1, page 143. Another officer was therefore substituted for him as commander of Hawke's artillery, a fact made use of in the errors to deny his having been dismissed. But a general reclassification of the generals was being made. The artillery generals were in excess of their establishment, and Bonaparte, as junior in age, was ordered on 13th June to join Hawke's army at Brest to command a brigade of infantry. All his efforts to get the order cancelled failed, and as he did not obey it, he was struck off the list of employed general officers on the 15th of September, 1795, the order of the Comité de Salut public being signed by Cambresseries, Berber, Merlin, and Boise. His application to go to Turkey still, however, remained, and it is a curious thing that on the very day he was struck off the list, the commission which had replaced the minister of war recommended to the comité de public that he and his two aides-de-camp junot and livrat with other officers under him should be sent to constantinople so late as the twenty ninth of september twelve days later this matter was being considered the only question being as to any departmental objections to the other officers selected by him a point which was just being settled but on the 13th Vendemar, 5th October, 1795, or rather on the night before, only nineteen days after his removal, he was appointed a second in command to Barras. A career in France was open to him, and Turkey was no longer thought of. Theirs, and most writers, contemporary and otherwise, say that Aubrey gave the order for his removal from the list. Aubrey, himself a brigadier-general of artillery, did not belong to the Comité de Saint-Public at the time Bonaparte was removed from the south, and he had left the Comité early in August, that is, before the order striking Bonaparte off was given. Aubrey was, however, on the Comité in June 1795, and signed the order, which probably may have originated from him, for the transfer of Bonaparte to the infantry. It will be seen that, in the ordinary military sense of the term, Napoleon was only in Paris without employment from the 15th of September to the 4th or 6th of October 1795. All the rest of the time in Paris he had a command which he did not choose to take up. The distress under which Napoleon is said to have labored in precontiary matters was probably shared by most officers at that time. See Errors, Tome 1, page 32. This period is fully described in Jung, Tome 2, page 476, and Tome 3, page 1 through 93.
Deeply mortified at this unexpected stroke, Bonaparte retired into private life and found himself doomed to an inactivity very uncongenial with his ardent character. He lodged in the Rue de Mal, in a hotel near the Place de Vicores, and we recommenced the sort of life we had led in 1792, before his departure for Corsica. It was not without a struggle that he determined to await patiently the removal of the prejudices which were cherished against him by men in power, and he hoped that, in the perpetual changes which were taking place, those men might be superseded by others more favorable to him. He frequently dined and spent the evening with me and my elder brother, and his pleasant conversation and manners made the hours pass away very agreeably. I called on him almost every morning, and I met at his lodgings several persons who were distinguished at the time, among others Salazetti, with whom he used to maintain very animated conversations, and who would often solicit a private interview with him. On one occasion, Salazetti paid him three thousand francs in assignats, as price of his carriage, which his straitened circumstances obliged him to dispose of. Of Napoleon's poverty at this time, Madame Junot says, on Bonaparte's return to Paris, after the misfortunes of which he accused Salicetti of being the cause, he was in very destitute circumstances. His family, who were banished from Corsica, found an asylum at Marseille, and they could not now do for him what they would have done had they been in the country whence they derived their precontiary resources. From time to time he received remittances of money, and I suspect they came from his excellent brother Joseph, who had then recently married Mademoiselle Clary. But with all his economy, these supplies were insufficient. Bonaparte was therefore in absolute distress. Junot often used to speak of the six months they passed together in Paris at this time. When they took an evening stroll on the boulevard, which used to be the resort of young men mounted on fine horses, and displaying all the luxury which they were permitted to show at the time, Bonaparte would declaim against fate and express his contempt for the dandies with their whiskers and their aureoles de chine, who, as they rode past, were eulogizing in ecstasy the manner in which Madame Schio sang. And it is on such beings as these, he would say, that fortune confers her favors. Grandiou, how contemptible is human nature. Memoirs of the Duchesse d'Ambrase, Volume 1, page 80, edit, 1883. I could easily perceive that our young friend was either was or wished to be initiated in some political intrigue and I moreover suspected the Salicetti had bound him by an oath not to disclose the plans that were hatching. He became pensive, melancholy, and anxious, and he always looked with impatience for Salicetti's daily visit. Salicetti was implicated in the insurrection of the 20th May, 1795, first perarial year three, and was obligated to fly to Venice. Sometimes, withdrawing his mind from political affairs, he would envy the happiness of his brother Joseph, who had just then married Mademoiselle Clary, the daughter of a rich and respectable merchant of Marseille. He would often say that Joseph is a lucky rogue. Meanwhile, time passed away, 
and none of his projects succeeded. None of his applications were listened to. He was vexed by the injustice with which he was treated, and tormented by the desire of entering upon some active pursuit. He could not endure the thought of remaining buried in the crowd. He determined to quit France, and the favored idea, which he never afterwards relinquished, that the East is a fine field for glory, inspired him with the wish to proceed to Constantinople, and to enter the service of the Grand Seigneur. What romantic plans! What stupendous projects he conceived! He asked me whether I would go with him. I replied in the negative. I looked upon him as a half-crazy young fellow, who was driven to extravagant enterprises and desperate resolutions by his restless activity of mind, joined to the irritating treatment he had experienced, and perhaps, it may be added, his want of money. He did not blame me for my refusal to accompany him, and he told me that Junot, Marmont, and some other officers whom he had known at Toulon would be willing to follow his fortunes. He drew up a note, which commenced with the words, Note 4. It was addressed to no one, and was merely a plan. Some days after he wrote out another, which, however, did not differ very materially from the first, and which he addressed to Albert and Cony. I made him a fair copy of it, and he was regularly forwarded. It was as follows. At a moment when the Empress of Russia has strengthened her union with the Emperor of Germany, Austria, it is in the interest of France to do everything in her power to increase the military power of Turkey. That power possesses a numerous and brave militia, but is very backward in the scientific part of the art of war. The organization and the service of the artillery, which, in our modern tactics, so powerfully facilitate the gaining of battles, and on which, almost exclusively, depend on the attack and defense of fortresses, are especially the points in which France excels, and in which the Turks are the most efficient. They have several times applied to us for military officers, and we have sent them some, but the officers thus sent have not been sufficiently powerful, either in numbers or talent, to produce any important result. General Bonaparte, who from his youth has served in the artillery, of which he was entrusted with the command at the siege of Toulouse, and in the two campaigns of Italy, offers his services to proceed to Turkey, with a mission from the French government. He proposes to take along with him six or seven officers of different kinds, and who may be altogether perfect masters of the military art. He will have the satisfaction of being useful to his country in this new career, if he succeed in rendering the Turkish power more formidable, by completing the defense of their principal fortresses and constructing new ones. This note shows the error of the often repeated assertion that he proposed entering the service of the Turks against Austria. He makes no mention of such a thing, and the two countries were not at war. The Scottish biographer who makes Bonaparte say that it would be strange if a little Corsican should become king of Jerusalem. I never heard anything drop from him which supports the probability of such a remark, and certainly there is nothing in his note to warrant the inference of his having made it. Borean. No answer was returned to this note. Turkey remained unaided, and Bonaparte unoccupied. I must confess that for the failure of this project, at least I was not sorry, 
I should have regretted to see a young man of great promise, and one for whom I cherished a sincere friendship, devote himself to so uncertain a fate. Napoleon has less than any man provoked the events which have favored him. No one has more yielded to circumstances from which he was so skillful to derive advantages. If, however, a clerk of the war office had but written on the note, granted, that little word would probably have changed the fate of Europe. Bonaparte remained in Paris, forming schemes for the gratification of his ambition and his desire of making a figure in the world, but obstacles opposed all he attempted. Women are better judges of character than men. Madame de Bourrienne, knowing the intimacy which subsisted between us, preserved some notes which she made upon Bonaparte, and the circumstances which struck her as most remarkable during her early connection with him. My wife did not entertain so favorable an opinion of him as I did. The warm friendship I cherished for him was probably blinded me to his faults. I subjoined Madame de Bourrienne's notes word for word. On the day after our second return from Germany, which was in May 1795, we met Bonaparte in the Palais Royal, near a shop kept by a man named Girardin. Bonaparte embraced Bourrienne as a friend whom he loved and was glad to see. We went that evening to the Théâtre Francois. The performance consisted of a tragedy, and l'issurde ou albert plein during the latter piece the audience was convulsed with laughter the part of danniers was represented by baptiste the younger and it was never played better the bursts of laughter were so loud and frequent that the actor was several times obligated to stop in the midst of his part bonaparte alone and it struck me as being very extraordinary was silent and coldly insensible to the humor which was so irresistibly diverting to every one else. I remarked at this period that his character was reserved and frequently gloomy. His smile was hypocritical and often replaced, and I recollect that a few days after our return he gave us one of those specimens of savage hilarity which I greatly disliked and which prepossessed me against him. He was telling us that, being before Toulon, where he commanded the artillery, one of his officers was visited by his wife, to whom he had been but a short time married, and whom he tenderly loved. A few days after, orders were given for another attack upon the town, in which this officer was to be engaged. His wife came to General Bonaparte, and with tears entreated him to dispense with her husband's services that day. The general was inexorable as he himself told us, with a sort of savage exultation. The moment for the attack arrived, and the officer, though a very brave man, as Bonaparte himself assured us, felt a presentiment of his approaching death. He turned pale and trembled. He was stationed beside the general, and during an interval when the firing from the town was very heavy, Bonaparte called out to him, "'Take care, there's a shell coming!' The officer, instead of moving to one side, stooped down, and was literally severed in two. Bonaparte laughed loudly while he described the event with horrible minuteness. At this time we saw him almost every day. He frequently came to dine with us. As there was a scarcity of bread, and sometimes only two ounces per head daily were distributed in the section, 
it was customary to request one's guests to bring their own bread, as it could not be procured for money. Bonaparte and his brother Louis, a mild, agreeable young man, who was the general's aide-de-camp, used to bring with them their ration bread, which was black, and mixed with bran. I was sorry to observe all this bad bread fell to the share of the poor aide-de-camp, for we provided the general with a finer kind, which was made clandestinely by a pastry-cook, from flour which we contrived to smuggle from Sens, where my husband had farms. Had we been denounced, the affair might have cost us our heads. End of chapter 3, part 1. Recording by Tina Nygaard.